everybody, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I appreciate you tuning in today. We hit over 30,000 downloads since the last episode, so lots of folks are getting wise about Texas. I hope you'll share this show with your friends. We need to protect and preserve the great history of this state. Well, it's August 29th, 2016, and we are in the heart of of the hurricane season in the Gulf of Mexico. As regular listeners know, I'm a native Houstonian and part-time Galvestonian, but what you may not know is that one of my grandfathers was BOI, which in Texas means born on the island. That's Galveston Island. He was born on December 28th, 1900, so his mother was very pregnant when she survived the great storm of 1900 a hurricane that ended up being the worst natural disaster in United States history, and it remains so today. One of my great-great-grandfathers, Arnold Wolfram, survived the storm as well, and we'll talk about him later. That storm changed a city and the state of Texas forever. This is part one of the great storm, and we're going to go back to Victorian-era Galveston and get wise about Texas. Well, we've talked about Galveston several times on this podcast. It was mostly deserted when the refugees from the runaway scrape arrived on the east end of the island ahead of the Mexican army in 1836. The provisional government of Texas made its headquarters on the eastern end of Galveston Island, making the island the temporary capital of newly independent Texas. The Allen brothers tried to buy the inhabited portion of the island to build their great port city, but they couldn't get it done. A Canadian named Michel Menard, or Michael Menard, organized the Galveston Land Company, and he got title to the eastern end of the island in late 1836. Now, he had arranged for a title through some Mexican citizens in about 1834, because before independence, non-Hispanic Texans weren't allowed to hold title. After independence, several members of the First Congress contested his title, But a payment of $50,000 and accepting a few investors besides his original two partners, Samuel May Williams and Thomas McKinney, well, that cleared his title right up. Menard began selling town lots in 1838, and in 1839, the city of Galveston was incorporated, and it was off and running. Galveston was the only deep water port between Tampico, Mexico, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Since everyone wanted to move to the new country of Texas, Galveston became the gateway for new immigrants. It was also the export point for the cotton that grew so perfectly in the state of Texas. Farm and ranch products also began making their way to the United States through the port. As Galveston developed, other ports lower on the Texas coast, ports at Matagorda, port, uh, the port of Velasco, port of Ranzas, and especially the port at a town called Indianola, tried to compete with Galveston, but Galveston led the way. The first ship from England landed in Galveston in 1839. By the end of 1839, Galveston had exported over a million dollars in goods, and that was real money in 1839. Well, Galveston was the largest city in Texas by 1840. It had about 3,000 residents then. By 1854, there were over 600 ships a year coming and going into Galveston's ports. They constructed wharves in 1859, and in 1860, a railroad bridge was completed from the mainland to Galveston Island. Now, the Civil War resulted in a Union blockade of the busy port and a temporary occupation of the town by Union troops in 1862, but you knew Texans weren't going to stand for that. On New Year's Day, 1863, 
General John Bankhead Magruder entered Galveston with cavalry and infantry, and he attacked on land, and he had two ships attacking by sea. One ship, the Bayou City, rammed the Union vessel Harriet Lane, which Confederate Marines then boarded and captured, and the Confederates retook the city of Galveston. By the way, one of the participants in this battle was the son of Judge Benjamin Cromwell Franklin from Episode 1 of Wise About Texas, so Judge Franklin pops up yet again in a big event in Texas history. Well, like many port towns, Galveston had suffered from yellow fever outbreaks, but nevertheless, it continued to grow, and by 1880, the population was over 22,000, and Galveston had the first electric lights in Texas, it had the first telephone system, and perhaps more importantly, it had the first baseball game in Texas. In a statewide election, the voters of the state decided to locate the state's medical school in Galveston, which is now known as UTMB. The beautiful Victorian architecture in the town, much of which still stands, made Galveston one of the most beautiful cities in the South. There were grand houses and ornate office buildings. It was a tremendous metropolis. There were 45 steamship lines that served the city of Galveston. Even the White Star Line had ships that came to Galveston. The White Star Line, you'll remember, is the line that launched the Titanic, of course, not from Galveston. Galveston liked to brag that it had more millionaires per capita than any other city, and it was probably correct. Life was very, very good. By 1900, 38,000 people called Galveston home. Well, let's talk a little bit about the actual island in 1900. The highest point in the city was only 8.7 feet above sea level. Now, it's hard to imagine that now because everybody listening to this podcast who's been to Galveston has seen the seawall in the city, but only after it was elevated 17 feet, and we're going to cover that in the next episode. But in 1900, it was basically a flat barrier island. Most people in Galveston believed it was protected from major hurricanes. The chief weatherman for the U.S. Weather Service in Galveston was a man named Isaac Klein, and Dr. Isaac Klein, and he had been asked uh, by the Galveston Daily News to evaluate how vulnerable Galveston was to a hurricane. This was 1891 when they asked him that. He wrote an article in the paper. He said that anyone who believed Galveston could be seriously damaged by tropical weather was suffering from a, quote, absurd delusion, close quote. Well, let's talk for a minute about Dr. Isaac Klein and the weather service that he was a part of. Any listeners who live on or near the coast like you know that despite all our fancy technology, we still don't really know that much about where a hurricane will hit or what it will be like. We know a lot about how they form, a lot about the science of the storm and what happens inside the storm. We can track it very well from airplanes and satellites, but we are still not very good at predicting exactly where one will make landfall or what that experience will be. We are. I saw this quote from someone, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was, but it said, we are very good at predicting hurricanes when they are acting in a predictable way. But of course, they don't always do that. Uh, when Hurricane Rita approached the upper Texas coast in 2005, despite the high pressure system to the northwest, thousands of people jammed the roads around the Houston area and southeast Texas area attempting to evacuate. Now, that high pressure pushed the storm east away from Galveston, and I remember making the call for my family to stay in Houston, which sounded brilliant after everybody hit eva- who tried to evacuate were trapped on the roads on the highways, but really wasn't brilliant. It was just a semi-educated and semi-lucky guess. 
In 2008, I had just moved into a new house when Hurricane Ike hit two months after I moved in, and the eye passed right over my house. And we had all the measurements and all the pressures and everything, but the experience was not what you would call typical of hurricanes, if there is such a thing as a typical hurricane. The wind was lighter than you would have thought it would be, but the storm surge of Hurricane Ike was much larger than the intensity of that storm suggested. So at some point, you're just guessing. Well, we knew even less back in 1900. So let's talk a little more about Dr. Klein. He was born in a log cabin in Monroe County, Tennessee in 1861. He was intelligent and curious when he was a young man, but according to his own writing in his autobiography, he was hard for his parents to handle. He did show some early determination. One time he climbed an apple tree after one particular apple that he really wanted, uh, unfortunately on a limb that wouldn't support him, so it broke off and he broke both wrists hitting the ground, but he got that apple. He was industrious in school, and he trained as a blacksmith. Now, his father was a trapper, and he wanted Isaac to rise above that sort of work, um, the hard labor, and make something of itself. But he was going to have to find a way to channel young Isaac into some more constructive pursuits. Isaac himself wrote of the story of when he was five or six years old, he took his mother's wash basin to the creek, uh, to make up some, he made up some dough, you put it in the wash basin, he was going to catch a bunch of fish. Well, he dropped the pan in the creek and he couldn't get it. So he went home and just acted innocent. And I think in a classic case of wait until your father gets home, Isaac's mother mentioned to his father late in the day how she couldn't find her wash basin. So his father marched young Isaac right to the spot on the creek where he had dropped the pan and he told him to get in there and get it. Well, Isaac was terrified of drowning, but he managed to get in there and retrieve that sunken wash basin. And he asked his father about it, and his father said, Son, sometimes you just know things and you can't explain how. Well, Isaac should have been a little more, should have listened a little more carefully to that because he would later ignore that wisdom uh, to the detriment of an entire city. Well, Isaac went to college at a place called, now I'm going to mispronounce this, but uh, Hiwa Sea College, which was a liberal arts school in Tennessee, and he wanted to be a preacher, but he thought he was too prone to what he described as, quote, big stories, close quote. He then thought about studying to be a lawyer, but decided he wasn't a good enough liar. So he was looking for a field where he could tell big stories that also happened to be true, so he told them he chose the weather. Now, Isaac was good in math classes, and he even subbed for the president of the school as a teacher in his math courses when the president of the school was unavailable to teach. So he was a very good student. Now, the U.S. Weather Service was about 10 years old when Isaac was graduating from college, and the way they recruited the weathermen at that time was they asked the presidents of these various colleges to recommend able students to join the Weather Service. So the president of the college recommended Isaac in 1882. The Weather Service at that time was part of the U.S. Army Signal Corps, so Isaac reported for Army basic training along with his weather training. And uh, he learned other things, especially important for the Weather Service was the telegraph, which had been recently invented. So Isaac got uh, a lot of training on the ins and outs of the telegraph, or as I like to call it, the 19th century Internet. They were also trained uh, to observe the weather and report the weather, but what they were not trained in was forecasting. The forecasts were very closely guarded secrets, and only a few people in Washington, D.C. at the central office were allowed to issue forecasts. 
Now, the reputation of the Weather Service at this time was fairly questionable. They had, there had been an embezzling scandal before Isaac joined the Weather Service, and the people in Washington in charge didn't want some incorrect forecast to bring disrepute to the whole Weather Service. So I think they might have been aiming a little high in that regard, but they thought that they could de- develop or maybe they already possessed the ability to make exactly accurate forecasts. In any event, the rank-and-file weathermen like Isaac Klein were reporters and they were scientists, but they were not forecasters. Well, Isaac was first assigned to Little Rock, Arkansas, and while he was in Little Rock, apparently bored, Isaac enrolled in medical school while working for the Weather Service, and he graduated from medical school in 1885. He was then assigned to Fort Concho, Texas, which is in San Angelo, and then he moved on to Abilene, where he married his wife, Cora, in 1887. Eight and a half months later, they had their first daughter, so they didn't waste any time. And in the meantime, the Galveston weather station was a total disaster. The head of the weather service needed a smart, industrious young weatherman to take over Galveston. It was one of the nation's most important cities at the time and couldn't afford to have a second-rate weather station. So Isaac was assigned to Galveston in 1889. The weather service station in Galveston was located on top of the Levee Building, which was on the corner of Market and 23rd Street in Galveston. And that building still stands, by the way. I'll tell you how to get there later. Isaac had arrived where he needed to be. He was a fancy dresser, and Galveston was a fancy city. It was also a very cosmopolitan city. It was still the center of immigration in Texas in 1900. There were multiple ethnic groups residing in the city, all with the opportunity to succeed. There was opportunity for everyone in Galveston, regardless of where you came from. That was Texas then, and that's Texas today. And Galveston was a lot like people describe New Orleans, only it was younger and fresher in 1900. Well, Isaac took to Galveston immediately. He not only whipped the weather station into shape, but he came, became a professor at UTMB Medical School. In his continuing quest for education, at this time he entered the Ph.D. program at TCU, which was then called Ad-Ran Male and Female College. Now, my wife went to TCU, and this podcast is being released the day I am driving to TCU to talk to their moot court team. So I must explain that the Adran Male and Female College was started in Thorpe Springs, Texas in 1873. And actually, Addison and Randolph Clark, that makes up Adran, started teaching in Fort Worth. But as the railroad came into town and the trail drivers came into town, the brothers decided that maybe Fort Worth wasn't the right place to try to educate young people. So they moved their school to a town on, started by Pleasant Thorpe called Thorpe Springs. That was 1873, and they were affiliated with the Disciples of Christ denomination of the Christian Church, uh, but they defaulted on their notes for the purchase of the schoolhouse in Thorpe Springs, so they had to move. The school uh, moved to Waco, but eventually settled in Fort Worth, and it took the name Adran Christian University. That eventually became Texas Christian University, which we all now know and love, or at least like a lot. So there you go. Isaac Klein went to TCU. Go Frogs. Well, Isaac cleaned up the Galveston weather station. His younger brother, Joseph, joined him as an observer in the Weather Bureau in Galveston. And Isaac and his wife had what was now their third daughter. In 1891, Isaac wrote that article I mentioned earlier on hurricanes, and the Galveston News published it. And in the article, he wrote as the authority on tropical cyclones. That's what he called them. His theory was that all hurricanes would follow a similar course through the Caribbean and turn northeast between the 85th 
meridian and the 75th meridian. Uh, now we're going west, so as hurricanes go east to west, so longitude is decreasing. And that would mean that Isaac Klein believed that hurricanes would always turn northeast while they were in the Caribbean. And because of that belief, he thought a hurricane would not usually strike Texas. He used the word accidental to describe the situation where a hurricane would hit Texas. Of course, in the last episode of Wise About Texas and in the patron-only bonus episode that I published in connection with the last episode, I discussed one of those accidents that destroyed Galveston in 1837. And he must have also forgotten the two accidents in 1875 and 1886 that destroyed Indianola. Another accident happened further down the coast just 10 days before that article was published, although that was only a mere tropical storm. He did manage to acknowledge that accidents happened, but said that those storms would be weaker than average if they did manage to hit Texas. Klein believed that even if there was a storm hitting Galveston, that the waters would just wash over the island and into the bay. Remember, Galveston was only eight feet above, almost nine feet above sea level at its highest point. So it was basically flat uh, to the beach. It's hard to imagine today, but he thought the water would just wash over the island and, and back into the bay. He thought anyone who believed otherwise was delusional. Well, by September of 1900, Klein was a weatherman of national reputation. He, he had would sometimes forecast in violation of the rules uh, that would assist farmers in the country. He had made some forecasts that assisted some farmers in predicting freezes. Uh, he had done those forecasts through Washington in compliance with the rules, but he skirted that those rules in the spring of 1900, and he went ahead and released a forecast of a flood down the Colorado River from Austin. Well, that forecast actually saved many lives. Later that spring, he issued a warning about Brazos River flooding in North Texas, which also proved to be correct, and he also saved lives and property. He was one of the best weathermen in the nation, and he knew it. Well, meanwhile, a hurricane was brewing in the Caribbean. I mentioned earlier that the scandal in the Weather Service and its jealous protection of its turf on weather forecasts well, one of the results of this was to shut down communications with weather forecasters in Cuba. See, the elite U.S. weathermen thought that they were above what they viewed as superstitious predictions by the Cubans. So they stopped considering Cuban weather forecasts and stopped communicating with them because they figured they knew a lot more. And that was unfortunate in September of 1900 or August of 1900 because the great storm passed over Cuba. It passed over on about September 3rd, and it dropped 20-plus inches of rain. Well, on Wednesday, September 5th, 1900, the Cubans recognized that they were in a hurricane. The U.S. Weather Service issued a forecast predicting that the storm would curve north, as they believed hurricanes always did, and that it would affect the eastern seaboard in New England. At Key West, there were gale force winds from the northeast, and then the wind suddenly almost ceased. So expecting their predictions to be right, the weathermen thought that the storm had indeed curved northeast, like those hurricanes always did. What was really happening, however, was that the storm was growing, and it was starting to spin faster, drawing the hurricane winds in toward the center. Of course, that would result in the force uh, in the middle of the storm 
that would push those winds back out to the edge and it would open up an eye. That was a hurricane. Well, on Thursday, September 6th, the U.S. Weather Service placed the storm northeast of Key West almost 150 miles because, remember, they thought it would always curve that direction. In Galveston on Thursday the 6th, the weather was fair and pleasant, at least as pleasant as it can be in early September. The records uh, show that there was a temperature of 80 degrees in the morning and 90 degrees in the evening. Well, Isaac Klein no doubt believed that the storm recorded in Florida was doing exactly what he knew it would and heading out to the Atlantic. But what had really happened was that the storm was being pushed from roughly the north by a high-pressure system, and that caused the storm to track further south from Key West and on more of a westerly course, and that meant Galveston. Well, on Friday, September the 7th, the Weather Service headquarters ordered Isaac to hoist a storm warning flag at Galveston. The service had determined that the storm was not, in fact, heading for the Atlantic, but may, in fact, be in the Gulf of Mexico. But they also believed it wasn't a big storm. So stop and think for a minute about what was going on. The weather folks, Isaac Klein included, believed a hurricane would always curve to the northeast unless it was an extraordinary accident. The storm, of course, had not entered the Atlantic, so it was either late turning or it wasn't that big a storm, at least to those folks. They didn't believe or wouldn't consider what was being reported from Cuba, and of course there weren't any ships coming in to tell them what was going on. Well, a survivor's account describes Friday evening in Galveston, and he recalls a north wind. This is Friday, September 7th, a north wind which would normally calm the Gulf surf, but the surf was not calm. The tide was actually higher than normal and very rough. And that particular Galveston citizen, who happened to be a neighbor of Isaac Klein, knew that a storm was coming, and Isaac Klein must have too. Now, in 1900, there weren't any reports from those ships, as I mentioned, and we can't imagine not having the latest reports from all points in the Gulf. But back in 1900, you stood on the roof or on a balcony or on the beach, and you made judgments based on what you could observe. Well, there was a ship in the Gulf that knew exactly what was happening. It just couldn't communicate. That was the steamship Pensacola. It had left Galveston on the morning of the 7th, and it went directly into this hurricane, and he had no way to warn anyone of what was coming. Well, on Saturday morning, September 8th, 1900, the day started almost like any other. The tide was still up. The waves were getting a little more aggressive, uh, and Isaac went to the beach and noticed the waves crashing over the streetcar tracks. Now, remember, at this time, there was no seawall, so the island was flat to the ocean, and the streetcar tracks were actually built out over uh, a little bit into the surf on a on a little bridge. Isaac had thought that the high water would just wash over the island and those waves were getting taller. So he warned people in the city that there would be some minor flooding. Now, according to his official report after this disaster, Isaac telegrammed Washington, D.C. Saturday morning that the water was reaching three or four blocks from the beach and that he had never observed such high water with a north wind. Well, what he was seeing, of course, was the beginning of the storm surge, but he had no idea what was offshore in the Gulf. Well, that citizen I mentioned earlier, that neighbor of Isaac Klein, his name was Samuel Young. He was president of the Galveston Cotton Exchange. He also went to the beach on Saturday morning, and he saw a high tide but a steady tide. 
But interestingly, while he was standing on the beach, the tide rose again and washed over that streetcar track, and he recognized it as a storm surge being pushed onto the island. Now, Klein would later write that his brother called him at 5 a.m. that Saturday morning and reported water over the lower parts of the city. Now, back then, when they referred to the city, they were talking about what we now know as downtown Galveston or the area around the Strand, if you're a tourist, is how you think about that. Um, And it was, of course, a little bit smaller than it is now. But Isaac observed the barometer only one-tenth of an inch lower on Saturday morning than it had been on Friday night. Well, as the water rose, citizens started calling the weather office on the morning of the 8th, but they weren't really given the sense, a sense of danger of what was coming because nobody believed it was that dangerous. The Galveston Daily News on September 8th predicted that a tropical storm in the Gulf might strike Louisiana or Mississippi. Well, Saturday was a work day for most of Galveston, the residents, but the residents knew something was going on. They just didn't know what. One resident described seeing breaking waves that looked very large from 14 blocks away from the beach. Another resident had to wade through the flood water to get to the streetcar. Another observer saw folks packing their stuff and thought that they were just tourists that had no idea how to handle a little bit of flooding or didn't understand that waves would get big sometimes. One sailor in Galveston on a ship that was was docked there entered into the log early Saturday morning that the sky was dark and the barometer was dropping. So he knew something was going to happen. Well, the rain gradually intensified and the water was rising very quickly. A few people started to head to their friends' houses or look for higher ground, but the commerce of the town continued. A train left uh, Galveston for Houston that morning, and another train entered Galveston from Houston that Saturday morning. Now, one passenger on one of those trains noted that the water was only a couple of feet below the track um, on the Bay Bridge. Uh, Made note of that, but that was it. Well, my great-great-grandfather that I mentioned earlier was named Arnold Rudolph Wolfram, and in 1900, he was working as a salesman for a grocery company. In the morning of September 8th, his wife, her name was Mary, wished that he would stay home with her and the children. And he promised that if there was a storm, uh, if there was a storm, or if the storm came ashore, he would come home. Well, he did come home for lunch, but there was no storm. So he went back to work. My family lore is that he survived the storm in a tree and that he grabbed a young boy floating by on a door on the floodwaters and saved his life by pulling him into that tree. So I'm going to be researching that pretty hard, and we'll talk about that in in part two of The Great Storm. So that was the scene on the morning of September 8th, 1900. The people of Galveston knew some sort of storm was approaching, but they weren't really alarmed. Galveston had faced lots of storms in the past. Surely Isaac Klein, the accomplished weatherman, was right that a severe storm could not hit Galveston, and if the accidental storm came ashore, it would be weaker than normal storms and the water would just wash over the island anyway. So children were playing in the quickly rising water. They were having a great time with their toys, their boats and stuff, and they were splashing around in the street. Uh, People by the dozens ran down to the beach to watch these big waves crashing onto the beach. The water, though, was rising very quickly in the streets, and the rain was starting to pick up, but nobody had any idea 
of the strength of this hurricane or the horror that was going to come. Well, my plan is to do the next episode of Wise About Texas on the aftermath of the storm. It's not pretty. I'm considering doing a bonus episode on the night of September 8th, 1900 and what happened through the night. So stay tuned for that. That day was then and remains the largest natural disaster in United States history. And September 8th and 9th, 1900 changed Galveston and Texas forever. Well, now we come to the part of the show called Getting There. Um, I mentioned Isaac Klein's weather office. It was in the Levy building. That building's on the southeast corner of Market and 23rd Streets in downtown Galveston. The building still stands. It's been beautifully renovated. There's a uh, bar in the ground floor called the Proletariat Bar. So go down there and check out the Levy building. Isaac Klein's house was located on Avenue Q, 2511 Avenue Q. It was south of Broadway. That remains a neighborhood. Don't go knock on the door. Just You can drive by and look. If you walk to the end of 25th Street, his house was on a corner, and if you walk to the end of 25th Street to the seawall, you'll be in basically the same area that Isaac Klein and Samuel Young were when they observed the beginnings of the storm surge on that Saturday morning. Now, of course, there's a seawall there now, uh, and you'll be staring straight at the Pleasure Pier, so it's not going to look exactly the same, but that's where they were. The ships that were in the port in Galveston when the storm came were all docked somewhere around, well, I say almost, uh, docked around 34th Street or so uh, in the harbor. Now, this area, too, has changed, and that's about 34th is a little bit west of where the cruise terminal is now in Galveston. So you see the cruise ships, if you go a little bit to the west, that's where those ships would have been during the storm. And Labor Day weekend 2016 is coming up. So if you do head to Galveston, there's a movie about the great storm. It's playing at the Pier 1 Theater on Harborside Drive, about 21st Street. Uh, You should also stop by the Bryan Museum, which is located in the historic 1895 Galveston Orphans Home. That building was severely damaged in the great storm, but it was restored and used as an orphanage for many years. In 2013, J.P. Bryan from Houston bought the building to house his astounding collection of artifacts from Texas and the American West, and he totally renovated the building, but he retained the original character of the structure. Um, So you can see a building from the time that survived the storm. Now, some of the footage taken shortly after the 1900 storm can be seen in one of the galleries of that museum, and you'll be in a building where many sought refuge from the great storm, and they all survived. Well, throughout Galveston, you'll see historic homes with a special medallion, and I'll put a picture of one on the website, that indicates that that house uh, survived the 1900 storm. And that's certainly a mark of distinction, even though uh, that storm was indeed a terrible thing and remains the greatest natural disaster in American history. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas on the Great Storm, Part 1. Stay tuned for Part 2, where we'll talk about what happened to the island uh, because of the storm and how it changed the course of Texas history. I hope you will like and share the show's Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter at WiseAboutTexas. You can follow us on Instagram at WiseAboutTexas. Take a minute and leave a review on iTunes. It helps others find the show. 
And if you'd like to support the preservation and promotion of Texas history, check out www.patreon.com slash wiseabouttexas, and you can support the show financially. Well, thanks for listening to The Great Storm Part 1, and until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.